You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where it seems like I've chosen a lot of opening songs that deal with fire. and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name is Sean Ingle, and I love Green Lantern, specifically the characters of Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner, who were pretty prominent in the books during the 90s, specifically between cover dates June 1990 and November 2004. And I'm going to take a look at them on this show and talk about them quite a bit. In fact, I'm going to get to talk about both of the characters, which I love, in the two books that I'm going to be covering today. Specifically, the Green Lantern Secret Files and Origins number two, which is going to be looking at, well, it's going to be looking more about Hal Jordan and Kyle Rayner in the book, but there'll be nods to various other members of the Green Lantern Corps as well, including Guy Gardner, including Jon Stewart, and including, strangely enough, the new core that Kyle created uh, during his uh, run in the prestige format book, The Green Lantern, The New Core. So I'm looking into getting into that. Plus, we're going to get part two of the Effigy storyline where Kyle, Jenny, and the Green Lantern Corps, whatever, face off with Effigy and his Corps of Effigy Corpsmen, whatever you'd call them. It's been a weird kind of issue. Kyle doesn't exactly know what's going on, whether he's been taken to a new time period, whether he's dreaming, whether he's under some sort of mind control, and maybe we'll be able to figure out what's going on with just what's going on with Kyle, if I could speak properly. But we're going to be getting into that, Green Lantern issue number 122, as well as some emails, as well as Green Lantern Secret Origins number 2, right after I take this podcast promo commercial thing break. For some podcasts you should be listening to. So, enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side of the promos. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. These freaks are dedicated, hard-working people. I'm Batman. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. 
This looks like a job for Superman. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. It started in November 2010, when one guy decided it was time to show the denizens of the internet that there was more to Superman's adventures from the 70s and early 80s than Alan Moore and Kryptonite Nevermore. Now, three and a half years later, that mission continues. This is Superman in the Bronze Age. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every week I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era on Superman in the Bronze Age. Join in the fun at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we're back. But before we get into coverage of the comics this time, let's go ahead and check out what we've got in from you wonderful listeners in the Just One of the Guys email bag. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and our first letter this time out comes from Professor Allen, host of the Shortbox Showcase, along with his daughter Emily, and host of the Quarterbin Podcast. Both of those can be found over at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network at relativelygeeky.blogspot.com. Definitely go check those out. Professor Allen does two amazing shows uh the one with his daughter short box showcase has really taken off and they recently as a recording of this did a crossover with michael bailey on the kents which was just an interesting interesting show and introduced the idea of consequences which we'll be getting at it later in the show but professor allen writes in about the subject of judgment day and he says in episode 118, you wondered what was going on when God's voice spoke as a plural, something like, come join us. Given the vaguely Judeo-Christian worldview of the story and the Catholic heritage of Dante's Divine Comedy, which was strongly referenced in the story, I interpreted that comment in a Trinitarian construct, context. 
oneness of God existing in distinct persons. Not saying that was what the writers were going for, but that's what I took from it as a reader. And that actually makes complete sense. The idea in this book of the presence, which was sort of the, not politically correct, but the sort of, well, yeah, I guess sort of politically correct term that they were using to define, you know, an all-powerful deity in the DC universe, him referring to himself as many would relate back to the idea of uh, Catholic belief that God has different forms as God the Father, God the Son, and Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit, and the sort of ethereal being that uh, Jesus uses to bless all the people who believe in him. And Man, I'm getting too heavily into religion in this, but I guess Judgment Day did it kind of on its own. Anyway, Professor Allen says, keep up the good work, and thank you, Professor Allen, for writing that. And I should have really thought about that, and that's the bad bad Catholic boy in me not for not remembering the fact that, yes, the God is sometimes and usually in the Catholic religion referred to as a trinity. So, uh, just never, never crossed my mind reading a comic that I'd be getting so thoroughly into religion in it. Weird. But anyway, we've got another email here from Luke Chacanetti. It wasn't specifically addressed to Just One of the Guys, but it does have some conversation in it that dealt with some stuff that we were talking about before. And I'll go ahead and add that into the and that into the show here. Uh, Luke writes in saying, Speaking of the annuals, I'm just up to before the Eclipso annual number one in my read-through of the series, which is a Bloodlines tie-in. Ooh, he's talking about the Eclipso book, and Luke was reading through the Eclipso book at the time and kind of filling me in on what's going on in there. He says the series so far has been interesting and violent. Spinning out of the ending of The Darkness Within, Eclipso has taken over a small South American country and is using its drug trade to spread actual poison across the globe. Dr. Gordon and his wife team up with the Creeper and Amanda Waller to try and stop him, and when that doesn't work, Waller recruits a team of essentially forgotten heroes, Commander Steele, Major Victory, Peacemaker, Wildcat No. 2, Dr. Midnight from Infinity Incorporated, and the then-current Manhunter, Nemesis, and Chunk. They storm in the country, and they seem to have caught Eclipso by surprise with their solar weapons, until he uses his thousands of thralls and the nation's military to kill almost all of the team. Yikes. The amazing thing is that these deaths stuck, at least until Infinite Crisis. Well, you know, aside, yeah, Infinite Crisis did sort of basically reboot things for the entire DC Universe, so yeah, there you go. He continues on saying, which brought back some of them because of their Charlton origins. Although while whether that was the original Peacemaker is not apparently up for debate, and the Manhunter who died was specifically a ringer and not actually Mark Shaw. See, my limited knowledge of the Manhunter and the character doing that is is so, well, limited, obviously, that I really couldn't say. But it sounds like an interesting storyline. Luke continues, he said, ironically, the spirit of the Peacemaker shows up in Day of Judgment. Hmm. I'll have to go back and take a look at that, see if he was probably one of the characters who was in Purgatory, I have to assume. So I'll check that out again. Continuing on, Luke says, the most interesting storyline so far has been a two-parter taking place in Victorian London, where we see the origins of the Heart of Darkness being cut into a thousand pieces, then Eclipso fades, faces down Sherlock Holmes himself. Ooh. That's, you know, that sounds kind of interesting. Maybe I shouldn't have dismissed this Eclipso storyline anyway. Huh. Interesting. 
Then he continues on and says, on a completely unrelated note, I found this issue of Unexpected at the used bookstore today, and he links an image of it from Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, and says, yes, you cannot withstand the powers of Space Linker. And what you kind of get in the uh, image is a cover of Unexpected that has... Well, it's Lincoln. It's Lincoln Memorial, but it's actually Lincoln sitting at the Lincoln Memorial, except he's in a very 1960s astronaut suit with the uh, domed headpiece as well, with the glass shield coming down over his face. It's it's a bizarre looking cover, but it's one of those ones like it's one of those WTF covers that makes you want to go. Well, I need to figure out what's going on with this. So, Space Lincoln, if he's out there. Uh, kicking ass with Space Genghis Khan, I think uh, this would be a book that uh, Scott Garter would be picking up. Scott Garter is still not going to listen to the show. But anyway, thanks, Luke. Thanks, Professor Allen, for writing in the show. If you guys like to write in the show, remember the email address is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. You can write in. Plus, I'll be at the end of the show as long as where else I can be found on the internet. So hopefully you'll stay tuned to that, and hopefully you'll stay tuned for this. Green Lantern number 122. Green Lantern number 122 was cover dated March 2000 and released on January 5th of 2000. First issue of the new, well not the new millennium, but first issue of the 2000s. The cover price was $1.99 US and $3.25 Canada and the title was Stand in the Fire. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Daryl Banks, inkers were Cam and Andy Smith, colors and separations were by Rob Schwager, the letter was Christian Leopolis, assistant editor was L.A. Williams, and the editors were Bob Schreck and Mike Carlin. Doing a very poor channeling of Alice Cooper, Effigy welcomes Kyle to his nightmare by calling the entirety of the Effigy Corps to burn the Green Lantern's Kyle Rayner and Jenny Lynn Hayden. Still reeling from the revelation that he restarted the Green Lantern Corps and married Jenny, Cal gets more mind-blowing information by seeing Fatality and the Manhunter robot are, are now part of the FG Corps. But before Kyle's former foes can overwhelm him, the other Corpsmen arrive and pull Jenny and Kyle's bacon out of the burner. Gaining the upper hand, Kyle captures an enigmatic effigy and heads back to New Oa where he drops off the matchhead wannabe with an even more enigmatic Ganthet. Kyle was wanting to question him about his loss of memory, but Ganthet shoots him and Jenny off, leaving Kyle even more puzzled. Jenny tries once again to convince Kyle that all of this, the core, New Oa, and especially their marriage, is real, and it's all because of his doing. Begrudgingly, Kyle relents and heads home for some victory nookie. Later that night, Obviously, after banging Jenny into unconsciousness, Cal sneaks into Effigy's holding cell to have a little chat with this Seattle slimeball. Cal point-blank asks if all of this is real, and Effigy replies, Of course it isn't, and he'll be able to tell him more if, they can get, if he can get him away from the center of all of it. Reluctantly, Kyle frees the flaming felon, and the two try to stealthily make their way out of Ganthet's citadel. But, just as they exit, they encounter the Last Guardian and the rest of the Green Lantern Corps all of whom are none too happy to have their Lantern Prime turn traitor. Effigy doesn't dissuade their opinions anymore by delivering some consequences, copyright relatively geeky podcast 2014, all rights reserved, on Ganthet's floaty chair. So using his last bit of discretion, Kyle drags Effigy quickly away from the fray. 
The court members give chase, saying that they were betrayed by one of their own before, and they won't let it happen again. But Kyle has to know just what's going on as he takes them out with a Super Mega King Kamehameha blast, and then streaks off into space with Effigy. Eventually, Kyle and Effigy get far enough away from this mysterious power source, and Effigy opens up a plane construct door that will lead him back to reality. But before he can step through, Jenny appears one last time and begs him to believe her and the love that they had together. Kyle says that he does love her, but this just isn't right, as he walks through the door and lets the flames engulf him. But rather than ending up a smoking husk floating in space, Kyle reawakens in his bed in his own apartment with a confused Jon Stewart looking on. Well, from the last issue, we kind of knew that all of this really wasn't real, but this is an interesting twist ending that benefits from not resolving the story at the ending, making you want to buy the next issue. The arcs by Banks and the Smiths, not the band, the artist, really looks good for the most part, but there all are, are a couple of wonky bits, as, as I've been finding a little bit with in dealing with Banks and various artists. But overall, a, a good issue, and makes you want to read the next one to find out just what the heck's going on. But going into notes, we'll go ahead and start with the cover, which is... It's alright. There's something a little off with Kyle's head in the cover. It is It looks a little alien. I don't know. It is Banks doing it, but maybe the inking on it and Smith and the way it's shaped gives it a weird sort of... Like I said, uh, kind of a look like an alien or E.T. type head or anything, but it's kind of wrong. Plus, you've got a jade in the background behind Kyle giving the shakus kind of look, so uh, there's that as well. Then, moving into the book on page one, here's another good example of one of the problems with the art here. Effigy's face and hair just look really flat. It, he doesn't look very defined. I mean, there's a lot of inking that gives him a lot of definition on his chest and his musculature, but the face just looks very bland. So it's it's one of the disappointing things about the art in this issue. But overall, it's not a terrible thing. It's not a thing that just ruins it for me, like previous issues where Banks and Austin were just having real problems working together with the art. Pages 2 and 3 get a nice sort of half-page splash that goes across these two pages that shows the members of the FG Corps. And one of the characters is one of those mad ball head things like uh, Galias said that we've seen in the Green Lantern Corps. Except I'm wondering if this one might actually have turned out to be Zillius Sox, who's a member of the Red Lantern Corps in the uh, Red Lanterns book at the time. Uh, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, you really can't tell these aliens apart. They're not really all that defined. So, yeah, the big madball head thing is just kind of similar to all the other ones. Is is that racist? I'm hoping it's not. They all just look kind of alike in the book, though. Weird. Page four, we find out that both Fatality and the Manhunter robot are now a part of the Effigy Corps. So, I guess... Effigy is recruiting all of Kyle's rogues gallery to be a part of this corps. I guess Graven and Hair Metal Sonar couldn't be bothered to be in it, so 
poo on them. Page 6, panels 4 through 7. This was kind of weird. I was looking at this artwork and wondering what was going on with Effigy as he taunts Kyle. And it wasn't until I looked at it again that I figured out what he's doing is he's creating a ring construct key with his hand, then putting it to his mouth and then sort of locking the key and then throwing it away, sort of, and saying to Kyle that he's not going to tell him what's going on. And initially it looked like he was just being flirty or coy or sucking on a lollipop. And I didn't know whether that was effigy coming on to him or something. Just kind of weird. Page 7, panel 5, again, we see as Kyle flies off with effigy in tow, or the lanterns fly off with effigy in tow, we see the cracked-open skull of Dr. Zoidberg there, and we'll miss you, Dr. Zoidberg. On page 8, Ganthet's secrecy about not wanting Kyle to talk to effigy unfortunately only leads to more suspicion and leads Kyle to... You know, have some validity to this thought that this may not be actually what's going on, that this might be something other than reality. So, yeah, you're not helping out, Ganthet. But then, just as a general note, and I, I'm i really hesitant to compare this book to Superman Annual Number 11, the one that had the story for the man who has everything in it, but there is a sort of common element between these books. The idea that Kyle's in an alternate universe that he feels isn't exactly what's supposed to be is kind of paralleled to what happened in that Superman annual. But in that Superman annual, there was a definite bleed through from reality to tell Superman what he was experiencing on Krypton really wasn't what was going on in this one. It's just Kyle being the one who doesn't think that's going on, thinks something's going on correctly. And I guess it's just sort of the common trope when you have these stories where someone is taken out of his reality and put into something else, whether or not he is allowed to believe it. I think the story would have been better served, in my opinion, if there was some sort of bleed through that gave Kyle a sort of glimmer to the actual reality, but there's no no hint of that within anything in the story. So I guess that's where the two could be compared but actually diverge from each other. Page 12, we get Effigy finally convincing Kyle that he knows something is wrong by repeating the statement that Jenny made to him a while ago that Effigy wouldn't have been able to have heard. So the fact that he said essentially the same thing that Jenny said is an indication that Kyle is experiencing something in his mind, something that he's not aware of, essentially something that's not necessarily real. So good seating there. With the escape of Kyle and Effigy, I really don't have much to say about that. My next note is on page 19, panel 4, and I think it's kind of interesting that the door that Kyle has to pass through to exit his subconscious mind, supposedly, is surrounded by a lantern symbol, but it's orange like Effigy's construct. So, again, just another hint that this might all be in Kyle's mind, and we're seeing that it probably is here after this. But, of course, before Kyle exits his supposedly subconscious mind, you get Jenny coming back to try and bring him in. And I guess if Effigy was supposed to be Kyle's subconscious, trying to get him out of whatever situation he was in, Jenny is the mental plant who's trying to keep him in this state. So it's it's interesting that whoever's doing this to him is, has put Jenny, this person he has a connection to, as the person to keep him in this state. 
But then on page 22, we get an image of Kyle in bed with John Stewart sitting by him, and he's waking up to supposed reality. Or is this even reality? We don't know. It's a really good cliffhanger ending that makes me want to read the next book. So this would definitely keep me coming back for the for the book, uh, definitely make me want to come back to next month and see what's going on. I really enjoyed the issue. I, it's another good issue, and it's another cliffhanger ending. And hopefully next time out, we'll be figuring out just what the heck's going on. But that finishes up the book, but it doesn't finish up our coverage of it. We've still got to go and take a look at the very 2000s advertisements in the book. And strangely enough, even though the year has changed, the advertisement haven't, as the uh, front end side cover gives an advertisement for nextplanetover.com. We've got so much cool stuff. We need a planet to hold it all, comics and more. So, yeah, comic book shop online, essentially few more pages in, we get an advertisement for the Burger King Big Kids Meal, which is hawking Batman Beyond figurines. These little plastic things, uh, little plastic toys look kind of cool. It's a Terry McGinnis Batman with some bat wings. Looks like a Joker on a motorcycle, some interesting stuff. And it recommends you watch Batman Beyond on Kids WB. So I'd recommend you do that as well. I think Batman Beyond is actually... I want to say most of the episodes are on Netflix now, so if you want to check those out, I think they're there. Then right after that is the ad for Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six. It's your one shot to save the world. Another game, first-person shooter game for the Nintendo 64 and PlayStation. We covered this before. Then there's an advertisement for SciComic.com, which is for people who see sound effects, the final word on comics, and it's got a bunch of... People sitting in a library reading various comics, including Astro City and whatever, and their uh, thought balloons have various equations and computer programming code and onomatopoeia from comic books. So, yeah, that's what that's what geeks and nerds do. They sit around the library and think up uh, words like choom, poom, and kabam in their brain few more pages in, we get the Three Musketeers ad with the ethnically diverse musketeers celebrating the giant-sized Three Musketeer candy bar. That's nothing that says nothing can stand in your way with Three Musketeers. Milk chocolate outside, fluffy nougat inside, incredibly pumped up. Yeah, that, that could be taken out of context really easily. Middle of the comic has an ad for Spyro 2, Spyro's Revenge, I guess. Uh, so, yeah, we covered that before. Then there's a new advertisement for Asteroid 64, or Asteroids Hyper 64, maybe. It's on the Nintendo 64, and I guess it's an update of the Asteroids video game with uh, more special effects and a, a more graphic design. It's not the vector graphics thing. There's Looks like there's uh, more background details, but it's essentially the same game. You play a little ship, fly around, shoot asteroids, and try not to get hit by them. Looks interesting. I've never played this on the Nintendo 64, not the Nintendo... Yeah, the Nintendo 64, but it it looks kind of neat. Nice little update of these games. We've got the uh, Life is Hard Scantron ad for the National Drug and Control Policy Council. Partnership of the Drug Fee America, Don't Do Drugs Kids. Uh, the goofy kick me ad with a spree with the kick me sticker on the tongue. I'm really getting tired of that. Look through here, uh, the advertisement for Catwoman with the uh, 
Jim, I like boob balance version of Catwoman on the cover for the Game Boy Color. We covered that again. And the outside is another ad for a Game Boy Color game, which I think we covered as well, Polaris Snowcross. So, wow, the transition in the 2000s really didn't lead to a transition in games. It's, it's basically the same old crap. Nice. Well, that does it for this issue. I'm going to go take a break and get something to drink real quick. And as soon as I come back from that break after these podcast promos, I'll go ahead and jump right into our second book, Green Lantern Secret Foils. There we go. Green Lantern Secret Files and Origins, number two. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which up until a few days ago was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters? Or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. And we're back to take a look at Green Lantern, Secret Files, and Origins, Number two, this bad boy was cover dated September 1999 and released on July 7th of 1999. The cover price was a whopping $4.95 US and $7.95 in Canada. It had multiple stories, and the first story out was Keeping Secrets. The writer was Ron Mars, the penciler was Cully Hamner, inks were by Bob Stoll and Howard Shum, colorist was Tom McGraw and Digital Chameleon, the letterer was John Costanza, and the editors were Richards and Dooley. Diving out of the sky, Green Lantern Hal Jordan gives a literal helping hand to an out-of-control Ferris jet fighter, saving it from crashing into the earth. Excited about his new line of work, Hal lands and prepares to tell good friend Tom... 
pie face. Kalamaku, the good news. But before he can let his best friend in on his secret, Hal is approached by Carol Ferris and FBI agent Ray White, who just happens to be investigating reports of a crashed UFO near here. Ray asks Hal to take a little ride with him out into the desert, not so that he can blast him and murder him to be certain, and lo and behold, the duo come across a spaceship with a dead, green-garbed alien inside. Ray asks Hal if he knows anything about this, but before the discussion can go any further, the duo are fired upon by a giant Russian robot. Hal easily defeats the Stalinist synthoid and pries the pilot out of it, planning on interrogating him. But Ray gets to him first and puts a bullet in his head, keeping Hal's secret as Green Lantern safe. Hal stops Ray's bleeding, but destroys the alien ship so Ray can't send it to a shadowy government organization for backwards engineering projects. As the two part ways, Ray reveals that, like his job, his name was a lie too. His real name is Aaron Rayner. Cut to Kyle's apartment a decade later, where Kyle is opening a letter addressed to him. As Snuggle Bunny Jenny Lynn Hayden gives him an affectionate hug, Kyle grimly looks at the letter, a note that simply says, I know your secret. This is a nice little story that retells Hal's origin to the one person reading this book who might not know about it. So, yeah, if you picked up this book and you really don't know Hal Jordan's origin story, well... Maybe this isn't the first book you should be reading. I'm not too keen on Aaron Rayner, who's Kyle's estranged father, being the person who discovered Hal's secret and is now blackmailing Kyle. In fact, unless Aaron has had more appearances in later books, I think this is his only appearance since the uh, issue of Green Lantern, Green Arrow that uh, was about the guy who was trying to pretend to be Kyle's father but was actually his uncle, I believe. So it's kind of convoluted. It's, it's one of those things where they try and make characters who appeared in books have some sort of relationship to the superhero character that they're supposed to be related to. That's making any sense. It's, it's trying to tie too many things together. It's like saying that Roy Raymond, who was a character who was a part of, oh, Detective Comics is somehow associated with Ronnie Raymond, the uh, guy who was Firestorm, when it doesn't necessarily need to be, there doesn't necessarily need to be a connection between the two of them. It's interesting, you know, that Aaron, who was supposed to be this sort of secret shadowy government agency, part of the secret shadowy government agency, did find out that Hal was Green Lantern, but now that he's blackmailing Kyle, I'm not certain where this is going. Maybe this will be fleshed out more in later Green Lantern issues. I won't know about it because, well, I haven't read those yet, and I'm getting ready to start into this era where I haven't been reading the Green Lantern comics. In fact, that's coming up pretty soon. But overall, this was a, a decent story. The artwork by Hamner was good, so I've got no complaints, really. The next page begins some more who's who entries, and this one is on Kyle's parents. Now, I'd love to tell you who wrote this. I'm pretty certain it's Ron Mars, but I have no idea who the artist is, because the scan I have of this, the title page is printed in green and yellow, and it is near impossible to see what's going on in there. So, yeah, I don't have the physical copy. I've got the digital one, but the artwork looks 
maybe like Tom Grindberg. I can't be certain. It's essentially got Kyle and his mother in the foreground with uh, Aaron Rayner and the Serpent, and it tells a little bit of origin story about Aaron and how he left Kyle and his mom when he was young because he was with some shadowy government agency, and it's a decent-looking who's who entry. The next one is, uh, and this is on the next page, is another entry for Kyle Rayner Green Lantern. Again, it looks like it might be Grindberg as the artist, but I can't be certain. Again, it's just basically an updating of the last Secret Origins one that had about a year ago. It says more about his uh, stint with the J not JSA, but JLA, and that he's grown into his powers. So he's more of a mature character. It's basically shown his evolution from the original sort of not certain of what he's doing Green Lantern character to a more focused and more heroic character. After that, there's an interview uh, from the magazine called Twilight, which thankfully has nothing to do with the movie about pseudo-vampires. It's an interview with Alan Scott, and I've got to assume, again, it's written by Ron Mars, and it looks like the art might be done by Kevin McGuire, because the facial features on Alan Scott here in the images look really, really like McGuire's. That's that sort of hyper-detailed look of very organic looking faces but it's an interesting little interview it basically tells about him being the starheart uh him well facing the starheart tells a little bit about his daughter jenny which twilight magazine which is a magazine that says that's a journal for maturing metahumans i don't know why but they're asking a lot about jenny lynn hayden and how hot she is which alan is kind of uncomfortable talking about but that's kind of neat after that, there's a page of the power rings and batteries of the Green Lanterns, and it basically has a mask of each Green Lantern, a look at their battery, and a look at their ring, and there's some distinction between them. Of course, Alan's mask is purple, while Hal's is green, and Kyle's has got the crab mask, and Kyle's lantern looks a bit more, well, a bit more 90s than the other lanterns. The other lanterns look pretty drawn to their era, so uh, it's kind of neat, I guess. And after the interview, there's another who's who entry on Sentinel, the Alan Scott character. I can't tell who the artist is. It's signed by someone with uh, an E in his first name. I don't think it's Eduardo Barreto. I don't think so. It doesn't look like that. It's the image has, the image is kind of nice. It's got Alan Scott sort of gray in the fore, sort of gray scale in the foreground, except illuminated by the green light emanating from his hands. And in the Serpent, there's images of Hawk Girl, uh, the Starman character of Jack Knight, and it looks like Black Manta. I can't really tell. It's various members of the JSA. It's it's a neat entry. Unfortunately. Again, because of the scan that I have, I really can't tell who these artists are because that's a crappy scan, so I apologize. Then in the middle of the book is essentially a Green Lantern flowchart, which basically says, you know, who came from who. It starts up at the top with the Malthusians and breaks off into the Guardians of the Universe and the Controllers, which the Guardians begat the Green Lantern Corps and the Green Lantern Corps begat Abensur and all this. It's it's a nice little flowchart to show you who came from where, so that's kind of neat. After that, we get another who's who entry on Jade, and 
it basically upstate updates her information saying that she's dating Kyle now and has lost her ring or lost her energy powers and for a while wielded the uh, Green Lantern ring. Um, again, I can't tell who the artist is on it, but it's a nice picture of Jade in the foreground with uh, Alan Scott and her and Kyle kissing in the serpent. So really kind of nice. However, I do want to mention here, there's some, aside from the artists being pretty much obscured because of the crappy scan, there's a couple of really interesting stories that are left out of this. Now, they're really short stories, like two-page stories, but one of them is a Barry Allen, Hal Jordan story featuring Barry Allen, Flash, and Hal Jordan, Green Lantern. Another one is an Alan Scott and Jay Garrick, Green Lantern, Flash story. But the one that I'm kind of irked that isn't in the book is a Fred Hembeck story written by Ron Mars, where I would have loved to have seen Fred Hembeck draw Green Lantern, but no such luck. However, there is a story in the book uh, called um, Hidden Thorns, which is written by Dana Curtin, penciled by Ben or Ken Ashley, inked by Barb Kahlberg, colored by Matt Webb, and lettered by Ken Brusenak, and it goes like this. Depressed from a recent breakup with paramour Kyle Rayner, Jenny Lynn Hayden walks the lonely streets of New York City until she comes across a street florist. Buying some roses, since she probably won't be getting any from Kyle anytime soon, Jenny continues the sidewalk shuffle until she comes across a thug trying to mug an innocent teen girl. Jenny tries to talk the martyr down, but he lunges at her with knife in hand. Jenny catches a knee to the stomach and falls to the street, but before the lowlife can plunge the knife into the former hero, he's wrapped up in thorny vines, subduing it. Crisis averted, Jenny marvels at her newfound powers. Yeah, okay. There's some decent art and an okay story here, although I'm not certain any of this will stick. I guess they're trying to give Jenny some sort of powers and she's lost her energy construct powers during the fight with the Starheart and the Heart of Darkness storyline. So, I guess relating the fact that she might have plant flowers or plant powers because her mom was Thorn, I guess that works, but again, I don't know whether or not any of this will stick. We'll have to see as, as it carries on throughout the Green Lantern storyline. After this, there's a few more who's who entries. The first one is a, well, not really a hero's gallery, but a rogue's gallery of uh, all of Green Lantern's rogues from the current time, including Effigy, Fatality, Sonar, Magan, which is kind of odd because he was a character from the Green Lantern New Core storyline, so that's kind of neat that he gets an entry. Uh, Manhunter, Android, and Graven. Yes, the... Bastard son of Darkseid. Supposedly. Yeah. And it's, again, decent art. I wish I could tell you more about it, but unfortunately, crappy scan. But then after that, there is a little story called The Haunting, which, oddly enough, is written by Jeff Johns and penciled in ink by Sean Martinbro. It was lettered by Clem Robbins and colored by Jim St. Clair. And inside the story, Parallax meets up with the Spectre who tries to bring the villain to justice. The Spectre delves into Hell Jordan's past and sees a battle between him and Evil Star. Having captured the Starbrand-powered baddie, Hal relates to the Spectre, Evil Star's origin, and how he and the Green Lantern Corps are hoping 
that there is a path of redemption for the villain. Seeing the spark of humanity in Parallax's soul, the Spectre decides to withhold his judgment for now. And... yeah. Despite this story being written by Jeff Johns, the artwork by this Sean Martinborough or Martinborough character really isn't doing it for me. The artwork is really, really simplistic and not all that well colored either. It's just not a good enough story and to make up for the artwork. It's kind of difficult to look at and not really a fun piece of this book. This so far has been a pretty poor Secret Origins entry, so sorry about that. But luckily we're almost finished with the book. We've got a couple more Who's Who entries. We've got one with the supporting cast, which features Guy Gardner, John Stewart, and Miran Dathalis, who are supporting characters in the Greenlander book. Guy looks good, except he's in a suit and tie while in his warrior getup. I don't get that. Of course, John is in his wheelchair, and Marin's looking all, well, elfy and hot and stuff, so there you go. But the next Who's Who entry is actually kind of cool. It's an entry for the core, which is essentially the characters who came out of the Greenlander book, the new core. And it features a couple of characters that really weren't in there in the story. It's got, of course, Anya and the uh, Judge Sewell, but it's got a character named Syndra, who's kind of a snake-like person, and a character called Beck Hot, H-W-A-T, who... Looks a lot like Watto in a flying saucer, a la, uh, what, Mojo from the X-Men? Kind of. Weird. Then, of course, we get Garl, the uh, four-armed Green Lantern, and a new character named Wei. I guess the characters of Beckwatt, Wei, and uh, Sinara joined them after the breakup at the initial Green Lantern Corps, when they lost the ring, so... Hmm. I, it doesn't say where they appeared other than in the new core, so I don't know exactly where the characters show up. Hopefully they'll show up again later on in the Green Lantern books, which would be really cool to see them. But the final Who Who entry is the dragon, and his name is Vlad Jarescu or something, who's the assassin that we met in the Green Lantern book a while back. Essentially the image is of him standing atop a building with his rifle, getting ready to, I guess shoot Radu. So, there you go. Nice little entry. He looks good. Again, I have no idea who the artist is, which is kind of disappointing. In fact, overall, I hate to say it, this book was kind of disappointing. Not because of the stories or anything, but just because of the scan. I may have to go and revisit this eventually and see if I can actually get a copy of the book, because I hate reviewing incomplete stuff. It just kind of irks me. And the fact that some of the stories in there had Fred Hemback art and Mark Wade on Joe Staten art as well. So it's disappointing, but I planned on covering it and I should have made the effort to go out and find it, unfortunately. Scummy scanners. Anyhow, that does it for this week. I'm sorry we kind of ended on a down note, but hopefully next time around we'll have a better doubt going of the uh, comics as we're going to be taking a look at Green Lantern number 123, which continues on with the storyline telling what's going on with Kyle and his sort of weird goings-on with Effigy. 
Is it all a dream? Is it all reality? Is he being possessed by some alien force? I'm putting my money on the ladder. Anyhow, we'll see you here in seven days. I hope you have a good weekend, and we'll talk to you later. Goodbye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Greenland podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed as well as scan the covers and whatever else I feel like putting on. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two and you can subscribe to the show there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeBonsecore contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greeklander podcast. The opening music for today's show was Rage Against the Machine and their song, Sleep Now in the Fire, off their album, The Battle of Los Angeles. If you'd like to buy this album, buy this song, or buy this mp3, the best place to go do that, of course, would be Amazon.com. And the best way to get to Amazon.com would be by using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. Whenever you go to the website at 2TrueFreaks.com, click on the banner in the upper left-hand corner of the site and be directed to Amazon.com. There you can buy albums, CDs, music, games, videos, televisions, entertainment systems, whatever your heart can desire, and all for reasonable, or even better, really low prices. Plus, every time you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com, a small amount of your purchase price goes back to help the website out. It won't cost you anything extra, so you won't be getting any penny pinched out of your pockets, if I could use some more alliteration, and it really helps the website out. So anytime you want to buy something from Amazon.com, make sure you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com.